0: The reading is from Genesis chapter 7. Genesis 7, beginning at verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, and mate, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark. As God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, on the seventeenth day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth for forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings." Pairs of all creatures that had the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth and as the waters increased they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the high heavens and the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 140 days. Amen.
1: I don't know whether you remember the question which we began with last week as we considered Genesis chapter 6 and 7. The question is this, it should come up on the screen again behind. If you were to direct a film on the basis of the words, as we find them in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, what sort of film would it be? What type of film would it be? And my assumption last week was that for many people, we've got a pretty distorted view of these few chapters of the Bible. We look at the flood through rose-tinted spectacles, and we create some sort of new Ice Age movie, child-friendly, PG-rated, comedy, action, adventure story. But you see, when I actually look at Genesis chapter 6 and 7, and hopefully we recognised this last week for those of you that were here, that actually what we're confronted with as we read Genesis chapter 6 and 7 is less of a children's story and more of a horror story. Because we looked at two things last week. Firstly, the horror of sin. The horror of humanity's rebellion against its creator. And secondly... The horror of judgment. God's rightful action in holding this world to account for the way it has behaved in God's world. Just take a little look down at Genesis 6, verse 5 to 7. These are verses we referred to last week, but a wonderful recap for us as we start this week. Genesis 6, verse 5. Here's the Lord who created all things. Look what he sees as he looks down on the world. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw... How great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The horror of sin. What a devastating snapshot that is of the human heart. And look how the Lord responds in verse 8. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. You see, God isn't some celestial slab of concrete in the sky who looks down on the world that he's made and he's utterly unmoved. God is moved to the very core of his being. As he sees how far the world has fallen from the ordered state he made the world in Genesis 1 and 2, so he is cut to the very core of his being. And in verse 7, we see that God comes to the point of saying, enough is enough. I will have to step in and take action in this world. And he promises a flood of judgment on the world to come. But we finished last week with a little glimpse at verse 8 as well because in this story we're not just confronted with the state of our own heart. We're not just confronted with a righteous God who will act against the wrong in this world. But we're confronted with a God of grace. Have a look down at verse 8. Right on the back of promising judgment, this is what we find. But... Noah found favour, literally grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And straight away from verse 8 onwards, I'm thinking, do you know what? What is this grace going to look like? What is this outrageous grace, this outrageous favour really going to look like? And as we read on in the story, we see exactly what it looks like. Because God does not leave this world in its current condition. God comes for this world. God acts on behalf of this world. And as we see in this story, God in his utter grace provides a way out for Noah. He gives him the ark, a way to escape the judgment to come. And the implications for us, friends, are huge as we understand our world today and the judgment to come, so we reflect this morning on this God of absolute grace and favour. Because as well, yes, has been a horror story. This is a story of magnificent love. A story of a God so, so loving that he did not leave this world in his current condition. He came for it and he came for us to give us a way out. And this morning, this is what we're going to consider. A God of grace and a God of favour. Before we look at the detail, though, of God's rescue plan in sending an ark for Noah, here's the headline of the story this morning. God is the hero. God is the hero of this story, not Noah. Unlike many of the children's books today, try and persuade us, I picked one up to try and illustrate this. I was hoping it's going to come out a bit bigger than this. Ordered it off Amazon, thought it was going to be an A4 cardboard cut-out pop-up book. Um, But here it is, so I've got a photo on the screen for you as well. But here's a classic children's book, trying to illustrate all that's happening in Genesis 6 and 7. Classic shot, isn't it? There's the ark in the background, lovely blue sky. Sometimes you'll see a rainbow nipping into the top corner. And there's the animals in there too. It's a couple of elephants... A couple of giraffes, a couple of zebras, lions, tigers, they're all there. Even the crocodiles are poking their heads out the window. But right in the middle of the picture, loud and proud, as if to say, this story's all about me, stands noah The centre of the story, the hero of the story, according to many children's books today. But you know what, I placed this little cardboard cutout next to the historical account that we find in here, and it couldn't be any further from the truth. Because Noah is not the hero in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. The Lord is the hero of this story. God is the hero. And I don't know whether you notice something quite remarkable, in fact, by his absence in Genesis 6 and 7. You don't hear the voice of Noah once. There is not one recorded word of Noah in the whole of Genesis. Not one recorded word of Noah in the whole of Scripture. Not because he was mute or he couldn't speak. We learn in the New Testament Noah was a preacher of righteousness but purposefully the author of Genesis pushes Noah out to one side. He doesn't want us to get the wrong idea. He doesn't want us to centre our thoughts and our opinions on Noah this morning. He wants us to centre them on the Lord because it's the Lord that does all the speaking, yeah? The Lord said, the Lord said, it is the Lord who acts. It is the Lord who initiates. It is the Lord who warns Noah. It is the Lord who provides a way out. It is the Lord that dissipates the flood at the end. It is the Lord that brings in a new order. God is the hero of this story, not Noah. And I don't know what you actually call this story in the past, In fact, put your hands up if you've ever called this story Noah's Ark. I'm thinking that's most of us. Do you know what? I'd like to change that. Because if we're going to be faithful for Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7, it's not Noah's Ark, it's God's Ark. This is not Noah's provision for himself to save himself. We've learnt about it already. It's grace. This is God's unmerited favour to Noah. This is God's provision for Noah. It is God's ark, not Noah's ark. And so from now on, if you're having a little chat out the back, over a cup of tea, and you hear one of your friends say, Noah's ark, little dick, little elbow. Mm. No, no. <laughs> this is not Noah's ark. This is God's ark. It's his rescue story, and he is the hero. And this morning, for a few moments, we're going to contemplate God's outrageous grace and favour to a world that desperately doesn't deserve it. Three things I want to pick up on this morning. And the first one's this. The first outworking of God's grace and favour is seen in God's patience to this world. God is a wonderfully patient God who is so slow in bringing his hand of judgement against this world. You see, for many people, I think they've got this view of God, cold, calculated, hard, delights in wiping people out, delights on bringing justice to this world. But do you know what? I don't think that's quite the picture we get of God in Genesis chapter 6. If we jump in at Genesis chapter 6 straight away and say, God just jumps in and acts straight away, but if we read this as a whole, if we start back in Genesis 3, we'll see it was generations ago that mankind rebelled against God. We have generation after generation after generation of corruption, of wickedness, an ever-increasing spiral of sin and decay in this world. And God looks down and he sees it all. He sees everything, the brokenness inside every human heart, the pain, the corruption, the deceit that floods this world. He sees it all. But you know what? He doesn't act till Genesis 6 because he is so wonderfully patient in holding back his judgment from this world. And this is a trait that we see in God throughout the Scriptures. A lovely tension that we see in the heart of God, that on one hand, God in his goodness is just and he must act. He must hold this world to account. But on the other hand, we see a God who is wonderfully patient and loving and kind and slow to bring his hand of judgment on this world. Flick to Psalm 103 if you would, or take a look on the screens, it's coming up there as well. As David himself contemplates the character of God, so we see this lovely tension again in the heart of God. Verse 8 and 9 of Psalm 103, this is the Lord that David knows. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. See this? He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, but here's the punchline, nor will he harbour his anger forever. You see that tension? He won't harbour his anger forever. He can't do. He won't hold back his judgement forever. He can't do. He must put the wrongs to right. But at the same time, he is wonderfully patient. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love because he wants to give the people of this world an opportunity to face up to the reality of sin and to come back to God and to say sorry. And you see when the Apostle Peter picks up on this as well, when he talks and looks back at the account of the flood, this is the application that Peter himself makes in 2 Peter 3. The backdrop is the flood. You learn that in verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And then he goes on in verse 9. Listen to this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Just because the Lord's not come back yet, he's not slow in keeping his promise. He is good to his word. He will come back. But he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord wants to give people time. The people of this world, who are oblivious to the wonderful grace of God, he wants to give them time to repent, to come back to God, to say sorry, to admit their ways. And do you know what? As a Christian stood up here this morning, I feel that same tension in my heart, and I think you should if you're a believer, because on one hand, I long for the return of Christ, Yeah? I long to live in a world without evil, without wickedness, without brokenness, without the consequence of sin, without pain, without disappointment, without tears. I long for that world. Do you not long for that world? I long for that world. The Bible says the only way that world is coming is when God comes back to dispose of evil once and for all. So part of me longs for that day in the return of Christ. I cannot wait for Jesus to return. But you know what? On the other hand, I'm absolutely rejoicing he's not come back yet. Because pretty much everyone I love in this world is not ready to meet him. My mum doesn't know Jesus. My dad doesn't know Jesus. My sister's family don't know Jesus. Hoppy, Stoney, Davo, John's, Tate's, I could go on. Pretty much half the people that matter to me in this world are not yet ready for that day. So half of me is crying out, Lord Jesus, come. Please come and right the wrongs of this world. Finish what you started. But part of me says... Jesus, not yet. Not yet. I need more years. Give my mum and dad more time, please, to acknowledge the of their ways and come back to you. I rejoice in the fact that God is a patient God and it's that lovely tension that we live in as believers. God will judge. But I am so thankful he did not come back before I hit the age of 22 and trusted Jesus because I would have been in a very bad place. Very rarely do we praise God for his patience. The story of the flood elevates God's patience as an outworking of his outrageous grace and favour and says rejoice in it this day. But don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted because the day will come as it did in Genesis 6 when God says enough is enough. God's patience is the first thing I want us to reflect on this morning. But here's the second thing and probably the main thing in this passage is God's provision. It's God's provision for Noah, and it's God's provision for the people of the world today. Have a look at Genesis 6, um, verse 13. We were in this verse very briefly last week. Here's God in verse verse 13 of Genesis 6 and he pulls Noah to one side look and says this, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the ark. There's the warning, but look at verse 14. Noah, this is what I'm going to do for you. Here's your provision, verse 14. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. out. This is how you are to build it. God gives Noah a blueprint for his own salvation. And as we work our way through this story, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, the ark is complete. Noah has finished the ark and the first drops of rain begin to fall in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons entered the ark. And then you get the wonderful little phrase at the end of verse 16, then the Lord shut him in. As the floodwaters of God's judgment rise outside and wipe out all those people who rejected God's provision of rescue, so Noah and his family are shut in. They're secure and they're safe and they're sealed in the belly of the ark. And I don't know whether you notice the emphasis in there in verse 16. Even here, the emphasis isn't on shutting people out. God leaves the door open till the very last moment till the first drops of rain begin to fall the door is open but when that time comes then the door is sealed from the outside and the Lord locks his people inside those that have trusted in his provision are safe inside the belly of the ark don't know whether you've ever been camping in a decent storm anyone been camping in a storm? you feel pretty vulnerable right? camping in a storm Flashes of lightning, thunder, and you're there under half a millimetre of nylon, and you're squeaking a little bit. That's the reality. You're squeaking. But on the very same night, you could be tucked up in your little three-bed bungalow, TV's on, cup of hot chocolate in hand, triple glazing, and you know what? You may not even notice it's going on. Maybe a little flash sneaks through the gap in the blinds. Maybe a gentle rumble of thunder but you just feel so secure, right? In your house, you're safe. That's the picture here. Because God's judgment is raging outside. Where's Noah? Where are those that trust in the provision of God? On the inside. And they are safe because the Lord and the Lord alone has sealed them inside. And then as we read on, we get to verse 23 of chapter 7. And judgment is complete. And so every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Get this, only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Only those that trusted in God's provision were kept safe from the flood of God's judgment. Why does it matter to us today? Because Jesus is the modern day ark. Jesus is is the means of provision for his people today. You see, everything that we read in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 is just a shadow. It's just a faint outline of the reality that is to come. We looked at it last week. You remember the flood of judgment? It's just a shadow of that final day when the Lord Jesus returns and judges all things. And so it is with the ark. The ark is just a very faint outline of the ultimate provision that we have today in Christ. Because God's son left heaven and he came and walked in this sin-torn, dark, broken, evil world and he walked there for me and you. And he walked all the way to the cross. And he hung there on the cross with my sin upon his shoulders. And God's judgment was poured out upon Christ. Not for his own sin, but for my sin so that I could be kept safe from the judgment of God. The question isn't, do we flee to the ark today? The question is, do we flee to Christ? Do we flee to him for our security and our provision? Let me just make two very quick sub-points as we think about God's provision. Firstly, God's provision is perfectly sufficient. We see it in the ark, perfectly sufficient to keep Noah safe. And so we see it in Jesus. His death on the cross in your place is perfectly sufficient to keep you safe. It covers all your sins. Past, present, future sins all laid to the account of Christ. He's died there. He's done it already. It leaves nothing for me. Jesus shouts out on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. It requires nothing else. We just accept. We just accept... What God has already done for us in Christ, it is perfectly sufficient. It requires nothing else from you. Just receive it, what Jesus has already done. And the second thing is this, there is only one way. God's provision is sufficient, but there is only one way. It may not surprise you that there is only one ark. I think we are pretty familiar with that already. One means of escape for Noah. What you may not have realised if you look at Genesis chapter 6 verse 16 in God's description of how the ark is laid out, there's actually only one door, singular, one door onto the ark. The lowly lizard and the proud lion, they can only enter through the same door. There is only one access point to refuge, safety and security, only one way in. You see, it doesn't matter about your standing in community. It doesn't matter about how much money you've accumulated. It doesn't matter about how rotten your past is. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It's not about you. Every single person has to go through the same way. There is one ark and there is one door and there is one way to God and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus stands there on the night before his death, does he not? John 14, verse 6, and says what to his disciples? I'm the way, the way, the only way, the truth and the life. Nobody, not one person comes to the Father except through me. It's only through Jesus can we be saved. You see, the offer of salvation that the Bible gives us is both inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive because it's for all. Whoever comes to Christ. It's for everyone. Anyone can enter through that door. But it's exclusive because it excludes all of the ways of getting to God. You can't invent your own way. You can't work your way to him or set your own parameters on your own benchmark or your own level of morality that you think will get you there. You cannot do that. There is one way. It excludes all boasting. It excludes all work from yourself. It is through Christ and through Christ alone. And so the question we're left asking this morning is, have we come to it? Have we come to Christ? Because one day the door will shut and the first drops of rain will fall. But God's provision is perfectly sufficient to keep us safe. But it is the only way. And so finally, God's plea is our third point. God's patience is a glorious thing that we should rejoice in every day. Every single day we have is a new day, a new opportunity to make a difference for him in this world, a new day to see people come back to him. God is perfectly sufficient in his provision and he is unique in his provision through Jesus. But finally we see God's plea to the people of this world. In Genesis chapter 7 verse 1 God doesn't just provide a way out and then sit there and not worry about what goes on. See what he does to Noah? He calls him in verse 7. The Lord then said to Noah go into the ark you and your whole family. In the King James Version it literally says come. (laughs) Noah please come. It's more of an invite. Come Noah, would you come? Now's the time. Now is the time to come to God. Now is the time to come to Jesus. And again, this is a wonderful quality that we see in God throughout the Scriptures, that he doesn't just put an action plan in in place, but he calls the people of this world to come to himself. You see it throughout the prophets. I've put one up on the screen behind here in, in Zechariah. Zechariah 1, verse 2 to 3. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you. You see, it throughout the Bible, the Lord says, please come back. Turn to me. Turn away from your sin. Turn to the provision that I've put in place for you. Repent. Come back. And I will return to you. Our relationship together will be perfectly re-established. And again, as we flick to Peter, as we begin to wrap things up, as Peter himself begins to apply this point here, we've looked at that already, haven't we? We see that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. John the Baptist, John 3, verse 3, came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It says, get ready for Jesus is coming. And then, of course, Jesus himself stands before this broken world. He left heaven and he stands there and he holds out life to the people of this world and just says, come. Will you come to me and find life? And there's only two questions that I'm going to finish with here. And the question for the non-Christian, if that's you today, if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, is very similar to last week. Will you come, please? God, please? He calls you. He called Noah, and in the same way, he calls the people of this world. Will you come and will you trust in God's provision for you? Jesus' death on the cross is perfectly sufficient. Just trust it. Please trust it. But don't take God's patience for granted. And secondly, for the Christian in the room, here's a question for you How will you now live in light of these great truths? How will the reality of a future judgment? How will the reality of a perfect provision for you in Christ affect the way that you live now? Let me read to you from 2 Peter, just from verse 10 as we finish here. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? See the question? What kind of people? What kind of people ought we to be now? What kind of lives ought we to be living now? This is what Peter says. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat, but... In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. God's promise isn't only one of judgment. It's of a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness, perfect restoration following God's final judgment. The question is, how will that affect the way that you live now? I remember a conversation we had in home group. Kim, you'll probably remember this when we looked at 2 Peter. And we asked the question, How would you live today if you knew Jesus was coming back at 12 o'clock tomorrow? See, we don't know when he's coming back. That's the point. He's going to come back like a thief in the night. But we should be ready. And every single moment of life should be lived in light of that future truth. Do you know what my life would look like? It'd look ever so different to what it probably will look like. I'll be on the phone to every single friend that I know that doesn't know Jesus i will be pleading with them to get on the ark. i will be brave. I'd talk to every single person in the street. I would fight sin in my own heart like never before. I'd probably love people more than I've ever loved them before. All the secondary things in life would be meaningless to me in that day. I would be consumed by one thing. The advancement to the kingdom of God. Because I've got 24 hours to help ready this world for the day when the Lord Jesus comes back our lives should look a little bit more like that. And that's the process. As we reflect more on the truths that we find, about, find out about in here, about ourselves and about God, it should stir us into action, as Peter says, to lead godly and holy lives for the sake of God's kingdom to come. Let me pray for us so that would be a reality in our own lives. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are indeed just. Thank you that you are indeed patient. You are full of grace and full of favour. And we praise you, Lord, as many of us can do in this room, that we are recipients of that great grace and favour. That through the work of Christ, we know that our place in heaven is secure. And we rejoice in those facts that we've escaped the judgment to come, not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of your provision for us in Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you that his death is sufficient. Thank you that he is alive today, that he reigns in heaven and, he call, and he's still calling people home to himself. Lord, would you give each one of us urgency and our own evangelism in this world and would, would you help us live every single day in light of the return of Christ, Lord. And for those that haven't yet trusted in you, I pray that you would help them um, think this through seriously for themselves, Lord, that they would see you and taste for themselves the wonder of your grace favour. We pray it for your name's sake. Amen.